Welcome to the Northway College Podcast. My name is Ryan, and I serve as college pastor here at Northway. And you are listening to sessions from our college retreat 2021. And at the retreat, our theme was the Shema. And the Shema was a, a prayer that was recited daily by the Jewish people. And it derives from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. And it says this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And so our retreat over three sessions, we we discussed this these verses, this prayer, and what it means for us today. Sessions one and two, we had Adam Tarver, who's the college pastor at Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Athens, come and speak, and he did an incredible job. And then I wrapped up the retreat with session three. We did have some technical issues with the audio. So a couple of the sessions in the beginning, there are some issues, but it, it smooths out pretty quick. And then we had a little bit of trouble at the end of one of the sessions as well. But all in all, we were able to get most of it and, and have it put up for our podcast. So with that, we hope that you enjoy it. We hope that it is encouraging and beneficial for your life. started dating obviously started filling in that template and then like I mean when we got a few months out to when we were going to get engaged I mean I went into full planning mode like I was putting so much time and energy into this I, I mean I had to find a way to get her to clear a day when we are not planners we don't plan anything in the head so how am I supposed to get her to clear a day without her knowing it so I had my buddy come up with a plan to say that his girlfriend that lived in Utah at the time was going to fly in so we'd free up that day so we got that day checked off the list and then I had to figure out how to get her nails done, and it was her friend's birthday the week before, so we got that taken care of. Um, I mean, this thing was elaborate. I had to talk to my football coaches and the people at Mercer because I was wanted to use the football field and the screens and all that. I had to work with friends and family because I had all of them involved and a bunch of different, uh, bunch of different people involved with it all. I had cameras. I had a drone, like I went all out on this thing, I tell you, I went all out, and, and here's why, if you, or if you would have asked me, hey, why are you doing this, I wouldn't have said, well, you know, I just really am nervous she's not going to say yes, so I need to do it big, I need to make sure that she loves me, right, I need to make sure that she's going to say yes, no, I didn't say oh, well, you know, I feel obligated. If I don't do this, then, like, ah, she just really expects this from me. I have to do this. No. I did all that. I, I put all that time and energy and effort and resources into it because I loved her, not to earn her love, not out of obligation. It was because I loved her. Love drove my thoughts. It drove my words. It drove my actions. It drove every fiber of who I was. And the reason why I'm telling you this is that's what we're going to talk about tonight is how love will drive everything. Right? So we've been talking about the Shema. Uh, Adam did an incredible job the last two sessions unpacking the Shema, this Jewish prayer, and said that Shema is the word here. And he talked about how hearing is not just this passive thing you sit and and let sound waves pass through you. It's inactive. You listen, you pay attention, but then you do. And then this morning he talked about Yahweh. 
in loving Yahweh, in the love of Yahweh, and how Yahweh is God's personal name. That it's the very breath that we breathe, that this is the God who, though we were his enemies, though we had rebelled and sinned against him, that he moved towards us anyways. He gave us his personal name to even say, because he is a personal God who crossed heaven and earth on our behalf, because he loves us. So we talked about that this morning, and so tonight we're going to continue and, and finish off these verses in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5. So if you have your, your Bible, we're going to uh, read these verses and finish off these words from God. It says in chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So he says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So in light of Yahweh, who he is, his personal nature, how he loved you, you shall love the Lord. Now, the, the words there, I want to break them down for us and look at to what the original Hebrew said, and then I want to give us some practical steps. So that's where we're going tonight. The first word, heart, is the word lev. It's the word lev. It's the generator of physical life. You see, back in ancient uh, Hebrew times, they had a category for what the heart was as an organ, and they knew that it was the generator of life, that the heartbeat, it kept you alive. They actually didn't have a category for the brain, and so the heart also was a place of intellect. Wisdom is found in the heart. It's also the place, which we know this, it's the place of emotions. We actually get our word or our phrase, that, that term, broken heart, from the Hebrew Bible. And so you feel emotions, you can feel brokenness, you can feel joy, you can feel fear, you feel all these emotions in your heart. And they also, for the heart, it was the place that dictated your choices because your heart had its desires set on things, and then it dictated what you did. It dictated your actions, right? So he says, love the Lord with all your heart. Your heart represents your life, your mind, your emotions, and your desires. Now the next word is soul, and the Hebrew word is nefesh. Nefesh. Now, there's actually some baggage that kind of comes with this term in our culture, because probably for a lot of you, uh, you're probably like I was, when I heard the word soul, I just uh, had the imagery of this disembodied spirit, right? The spirit is trapped in the physical body, and the goal is to get away from the physical body, and, and that's not really what it, it is. Soul, nefesh, this word, it is most basic translation is the word throat. It's, it's a throat. You see it in Numbers 11, 6 says, but now our nefesh is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Their throats were dry. But this also can represent the whole person. So not just a throat, it's a part that represents the whole. In Numbers 31, 19, it says, whoever of you has killed any nefesh. So there he's not, not talking about just the throat, he's talking about the throat representing the whole person. So we see that nefesh is not just some spiritual thing that's separated from the body, it's actually the whole person. And so the, the bottom line is that the soul is all that you are. It's your physical being. And then the last word is myod. Myod. Now, 
it's translated oftentimes as strength, sometimes as might or power. But this, this word strength, there's actually not really any other areas where this word is translated as strength. There's a different word in the Hebrew that, that uh, covers strength. And so this word was actually an adverb. Now, for those of you who fell asleep in English class growing up and you don't know what an adverb is, I'll give you the definition. Adverb is a word or a phrase that modifies or qualifies an adjective, verb, or other adverb, or a word group. So some examples of them would be, he ran quickly, or she spoke softly. So quickly and softly would be the adverb. So this word is actually an adverb, and it's very or very much. We see it in Genesis 1, 31. It says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Or you see it in Genesis 4, 5, but Cain and his offering, he had no regard, so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So it means very or much. And so in the context of this, what he's saying is love the Lord with all your heart and with, with all your soul and with your muchness. And now that sounds weird, but it's adding emphasis. It's all-encompassing. It's a broad term. And what it does is it intensifies the meaning. In the Greek, when they first translated it, actually, some people translated it as power. In the Aramaic, they translated it as wealth. And so what we're seeing, it's so broad. And the bottom line is, love God with everything to an extra extent, exceedingly very much. Every moment and every opportunity, every ability and every capacity devoted to loving God. And so when you put it all together, simplifying it down, what he's saying in the Shema is we're to love God with everything. Everything, everything, everything. We're to love him with all that we are. Our thoughts, our words, our actions. The love of God affects and drives every fiber of our being. Now, we've got to ask, though, how is this even possible? Because what Adam talked about this morning is we all are sinners, right? We're all sinners, and we don't have to look far to understand that. What it says in Jeremiah 17:9 is the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we would agree with that. Our hearts are broken. Mankind has twisted hearts. That's why the psalmist, while David in Psalm 51.10, when he had committed adultery and murder, he cried out to God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He knew there was an issue of a heart, and he knew he needed a heart change. And like prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah both foretold of a day when God would place a new heart in mankind. And then John 14.16 says that, Jesus sends the helper. He sends the Holy Spirit. So here's what happens when we confess our sins, Lord, and we confess that Jesus is Lord, and we give our life over to him. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells and resides in us and begins to change and mold and shape us, and we are given new hearts, and with new hearts comes new desires. Right? Some of you have seen this because you're dating. You can see it in dating, you can see it in marriage relationships. I know for me, whenever um, I started dating Sarah, things started to change. Some of my closest friends, they joke and they say, we knew it was serious when you bailed on us to go hang out with her. We're like, okay, something's different here. Because I would have never done that beforehand. 
It changes how you spend time. It changes how you spend money. I cannot emphasize that enough. It changes how you spend money. She loves Hobby Lobby. Um, it changes how you speak and how you talk. I mean, I kid you not, a few weeks ago, within a span of five minutes, I was talking to a couple of you guys, and I instinctively, twice, someone showed me something. And I said, oh, that's cute. Are you kidding me? That's cute? That was not in my vocabulary before Sarah. Or another one, I say, oh, why are you being so sassy right now? Sassy? That's not a word that I use. Are you kidding me? But since my heart for her, my heart has changed. It's love for her has gripped my heart, and it's changed my desires. And because my desires have changed, it's changed everything else. That's the picture here. When we commit our lives to Christ, because he first loved us, we then have a new heart. We, have, we are given a clean heart, and with a new heart comes new desires. And with a new desires, it changes everything. And so what does this look like? I want to give us two very broad but practical areas, practical ways that it changes us. So the first one is this. Love of God brings full submission to God. Love of God brings full submission to God. In John 14, 15, Jesus says so plainly and so clearly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's not much room for argument there. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he even contrasts it in John 14, 23 through 24. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The Bible contrasts the person between the difference between someone who loves the Lord and the person who does not. And he says, if you love me, you will walk in obedience. And John 15 is going to say in a little bit different way. He says, abide in me, abide in my love, and you will produce fruit. Abide is rest, stay, cling, stay, rest in me, in my love, and you will produce fruit. Now, some of your minds, because you, you were raised in Sunday school, and you remember, they made you remember these verses, Galatians 5, and if you repeated it, you got a piece of candy or something, and some of you can probably finish this and recite this better than me, but Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all those, that whole list that I probably butchered some of them, but that's what it is. When you abide in Christ, and you abide in his love, you will produce fruit you will produce the fruits of the Spirit to a supernatural extent. In fact, Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. Apart from him, we cannot produce true fruit. An apple doesn't just manifest on its own. It comes from the tree. It says when we are abiding and resting in Christ, we will be loving and joyful and we will be patient to a supernatural extent because it's the Holy Spirit in us. It, it talks in Galatians 5 that we're to keep in step with the Spirit. The picture is like a beautiful dance. You know, when, when people are dancing and they're in rhythm together and there's, there's harmony and they're moving eloquently, it, it's beautiful. Now, if I tried to dance, it'd be completely different. I have no rhythm. It would not be beautiful because I'm not in step 
with my dance partner. And so that's the picture here. When we are in step with the Holy Spirit, we will produce the fruits of the Spirit. It shows in our actions. And you know this because when you abide in the love of Christ, when you are keeping a step with the Holy Spirit, it leads to outward action because you begin to look more like your Father. Because the more you hang out with someone, the more you rest in a certain group, it affects the way you look. It affects the outward behavior. You become who you root yourself with. Now, I don't know if things have changed with you guys who are at Mercer, but for me, when I was there, it was so easy to pinpoint what sport someone played, right? If I saw someone with a hoodie and beats on, they were one of my teammates. They were a football player. If I saw someone with a flat bill hat and a chain, baseball player, easy. If I saw someone with a windbreaker jumpsuit, even if it was the summer, and they happened to be over 6'5", basketball player, easy. And this one's the most telltale one. If I saw someone with highlighter shorts and some kind of jersey, like usually it was a hockey jersey, something like that, with a snapback on backwards with flowing hair, lax bro all day long, right? It is so evident because they were in their little circles and their circles dictated and influenced what they desired, how they dressed, how they acted. And it's so easy to pick it out. What here Jesus is saying is that how can you tell if you love God? Look at how you're submitting to his commands. Look at the fruit in your life. Look at the obedience When you root yourself in Christ and in his love, you will produce fruit and you will walk in obedience. You will obey his commands. Now, when he says obey my commands, he's speaking of his word, scripture, the Bible, what we have. And so let's let's think through some of these commands, what it says in scripture. When we love God, that means we're going to be truthful and honest in every area of life. That means in the classroom on a test, on homework. It means in your future career, you're going to be honest in that. It means you're not going to allow fear and anxiety to rule your heart because you know there's no place for fear in your life. You're not going to be worried about the future. You're not going to be worried about who you're going to marry, if you're going to get married, what job you're going to get, how school is going to play out. You're going to set aside time to rest. You're not going to allow your busy schedule to dictate your rhythm of rest that God has called us to have. You will keep God at the centermost point of your life. You will not allow any idol to creep in and take his place. No relationship, no amount of success, not your work or achievement. Nothing will take his place because he it will be at the center. Walking in obedience means that you're not going to harm or even hate or harbor any kind of bitterness towards anyone else because you're called to love other people. You're going to fight for purity in your relationships because you know that God has called you to do that. You will not covet or be jealous of the success that someone else has or the giftings that they have or the material things that they have. You will serve others. You will delight in the word of God. See, when we love God, we will walk in obedience. Now, 
I know for so many of you, there's probably a little bit of a tension right now. Because as we talk through these things, some of them you're like, oh yeah, y'all need to get y'all act together. Like, stop doing that. But then some of them, you're like, okay, let's just move past this. Right? Because we know we fall short. And so I just want to be very, very clear here. Believer, Christian, you're not perfect. You, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you were immediately justified. You were immediately put in right standing before God. Christ's righteousness was put before you. He does not see your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness on you. However, you are not yet sanctified. What that means is you are not yet perfect. You are not yet fully glorified. You were given the Holy Spirit who will continue to mold and shape your, your heart and mold and shape your life, but you will not be fully glorified and sanctified until you stand before him in eternity. So what that means is you will stumble and fall in this life. You will not obey perfectly, but it is okay because Christ has obeyed perfectly for you. But what that does mean is that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and your life will not be characterized by a lifestyle of sin and disobedience. You will stumble, you will fall, you have moments of weakness, you might even have seasons of rebellion. But the believer will be convicted of that sin. The Holy Spirit will convict you of that sin so that you can then repent and move away from that sin. So, with these commands, though, I want to be clear as well. Sometimes we can have an inaccurate view of them. We think that the commands were, were meant to steal our joy, steal our freedom, be this extra weight on us. But in reality, it's supposed to be the exact opposite. God gives us commands so that we can experience joy. It says in John 15, 11, that we can experience joy that is full. And it says in 1 John 5, uh, 2 through 3, it says that the commandments, they're not burdensome. They're not an extra weight. They're meant to ensure that we can experience this life in the fullness. And anyone who's been around a toddler understands this. How many of you have, like, little, little children in your family? Like, cousins, little brothers, sisters, like, y'all have seen them go through the toddler stage? Here's what happens, and you know this to be true. You set that child down, and immediately they're going for every light socket in the room. Like, immediately, they, like, gravitate to all the things that can do so much harm and damage to them. And for you, as the authority or as their parent, you come in and you have to intercede and say, no, don't do that. No, don't touch that. No, don't stick your tongue in the light socket. That's crazy. Don't do that. And for them, you're going to wreck their world. How dare you tell them that they can't live out their desires? How dare you restrict their freedom? But in reality, what you know is you're not restricting their freedom. You're giving them freedom. You have given them that command out of love. A loving parent does these things. And that's the picture of God. God loves us, and he knows how we best operate, so he's given us his commands because he wants us to experience life in the fullness. Let me be very clear here. Sin is not freedom. Sin is destruction. Sin is an oppressive master. In Romans 3.23, it says that we, uh, sin brings death. Sin enslaves us. 
In John 10.10 it says, the enemy has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. But it says that I, this is Jesus, I have come to give you life in abundance. And so for us, we need to understand grace is not this license to sin, like, oh, you're forgiven, so go do what you want. Grace is setting us free from the powers of sin. And so we have a choice that we can either submit to the authority of sin and experience destruction, or we can submit to the authority of God and experience freedom in life. True love of God leads to full and complete submission to him and to his authority. And the second thing is loving God leads to loving others. Loving God leads to loving others. It says in John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He says, love one another as I have loved you. That is a strong qualifier. Why? Because he's going to tell us how did he love us. It says in John 15, verses 12 through 14, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He says, there is no greater love than someone to sacrifice and lay down their life for their friends. And let me tell you, you are my friends. See, Jesus, while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, while we were unlovable, he loved us so much that he crossed heaven and earth. He pursued after us, and he laid down his life for us. And that love leads us to love, right? He calls us to love as he is loved. He loved his church, his bride, and he laid down his life sacrificially for her. And so we are to love the bride of Christ. We are to love the church, other believers. It's a family. We are to sacrifice and love one another. We are to endure and be patient. I got to tell you, being a part of a Christian family, a, a community of believers, it's a powerful and amazing thing. But we are still broken and sinful, and it is not always easy to love one another. Sometimes we get on each other's nerves. But true love, true love will endure through that and be patient with that. True love fights for unity. True love is not divisive in the church, in the body of believers. True love fights for unity. True love is quick to say, hey, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for that. I did not mean to do that. I'm so sorry. Quick, uh, true love is quick to forgive and to send grace and not hold grudges. True love serves one another and serves the needs of one another on a personal level. It's, it's seeking someone out and helping them. Maybe it's you just being a listening ear to them, having a conversation with them, praying with them. Maybe it's helping them financially. Maybe it's helping them move. It's, it's taking care of the needs of one another. 
It's seeking out, not just saying, hey, what can I do for you? It's looking intentionally for ways to serve and love one another. And maybe on a personal level, you find someone that you know, like they've got kids. It's, it's, it's hectic for them. They're stressed. And maybe the most loving thing you can do is go babysit their kids for free and give them a night out to go and just relax. As a very practical way to love someone. It, you love not just personally, though. You love the church the local body of believers, and you serve the church. We've already talked a little bit about this, but something that you guys can do in a very practical way to put this into practice is to serve. You serving on a Sunday morning and helping out with kids or, or with preschool, it might not seem like the most loving thing. You're like, well, I don't get it. It might not seem even like the most spiritual thing sometimes. Sometimes they're insane. Kelsey can attest to it, right? Sometimes the kids are crazy. Sometimes the preschools are crazy, and you're like, they didn't get anything spiritual out of this. I'm surprised they're still living at the end of this. But what you don't see and understand is that how you have those kids, and they're all crazy, they're like that all the time at home. And their parents have no break and no rest, and they're stressed, and there's other things going on, and there's work and, and all these other things, and you just taking them for an hour on a Sunday morning, let that couple go into worship and to sing praises with a community of believers and to hear the word of God preached and to just, quite frankly, de-stress from their crazy children. And so it is an extremely loving thing for you to do. And so look, someone who has been, who has experienced the love of God and who is loving others well and loving the church well will step up and serve. But the second aspect of it is loving the lost. If you love the Lord, you will love people because you will love the way that he loved. And the way he loved is he laid down his life for us while we were still sinners. He pursued after us. There was a, a moment uh, where this just became so vivid for me a few years back when I was a student pastor. We took our, our kids to a summer camp. And at the summer camp, there was this worship uh, band, and, and the worship leader was incredible. His name's Chuck Hooten. We just love him. Incredible guy, beautiful family. Just, just all around, just love him. And the speaker was great, too. And they had a little Q&A, and one of our students wanted to go. So Sarah and I took her, and it was in, like, an amphitheater-type style. And this one girl slipped in the back, and you could just see something was off, that there was just a weight on her. And at some point, she asked the question, or something along the lines of this question, how can I know that God loves me? How can I know that God loves me? And the leaders, they, they did a really good job of answering it, but you could still see it didn't fully click, that it wasn't quite there. But they did their due diligence. They did what they were supposed to do. And let's be honest, those weekends are exhausting for them, right? As exhausting as it is for Eric and the band, I can only imagine being doing that at like a student camp where like they're basically celebrities. The kids are kind of annoying sometimes and pestering you. Like they did their job though. And that was enough. But for Chuck, the, the singer, it wasn't enough. And at the end, when she slipped out, like as soon as the end, she slipped out the back, before everyone could even stand up, Chuck bolted up the stairs after this girl. He chased her down because he wanted her to know and to understand the love with which that she was loved by God. He wanted her to know and understand 
that she can have assurance of that love because of how he demonstrated that love for her that God pursued after her on the cross with Christ. And catch the picture of that so that she would know and experience and believe that God loves her and pursued her. What did he do? Chuck pursued after her, driven by love. When you love the way that God loves you, you will love the lost and you will be driven after them in great pursuit because of that love, because you want them to know the love with which they are loved. You'll pursue them with gospel-driven love. And, And when we fail to do this as believers, when we fail to pursue after the lost, when we take a passive approach at this, when this isn't at the forefront of our mind, it really honestly just does not make sense. It'd be like this. It's, it's like if you were on a boat, and on this boat, you found out and knew that the boat was going down. Like, it was sinking. It was done. But you found out and had confidence that there's this other boat that was coming, and that as long as you could get to that boat, everyone who got there would be saved. And so you are walking towards that direction with the confidence knowing that though this ship's going down, you have salvation coming for you, you're walking in that direction, it would be weird if you just walked right past people. It would be weird if you walked past these strangers and you kind of give them a head nod and keep going. It would be weird to pass by all these people, your friends, your classmates, knowing that they're headed in the wrong direction, but you go with confidence to where you're going, passing by your family, knowing that they're heading the wrong way. It would be weird for us to do that. Christian, it is weird and passive and, quite frankly, unloving when we are not pursuing after the lost. Because when we love God, we will love his people. When we experience the love of God, it changes and creates a new heart in us and helps us love others well. Love begets love. A recipient of love becomes a distributor of love. A recipient of love becomes a distributor of love. When you experience the love and the grace and the mercy and the peace that comes from knowing God, from having a relationship with him, it is natural for you to want to proclaim that. When we get excited about things, we want to proclaim it. We want to tell things. How much is there anything else that's more exciting than knowing that you have a relationship with God, knowing that it changes every fiber of your being? Love will send you out. When you see the the condition of the lost and the brokenness of your friends who are lost, knowing that, that if they would just know Jesus, if they would give their life to him, that he would grab hold of their heart and give them a new heart and give them a new future and a new eternity. You would pursue after them. I heard a quote one time from this man named Charles Peace. He was a criminal in England who was, who was, on tri- he was actually about to be executed for murder, for burglary. And they had a priest come in and start reading scripture to him because that was just the protocol. And he started talking about about heaven and hell and, and God and all these things, and the, the criminal interrupted him, and he said this. He said, sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, 
Even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. If you love people, you will pursue after them. It will drive you towards them because you want them to know that they have a God who loves them deeply. You want them to know the love with which they were loved that was demonstrated on the cross of Christ. And so you will pursue after them. And so I just want to close with, with challenging you a little bit. I want to I push you a little bit. If you are a believer, someone who is a genuine follower of Christ, you, you are someone who's given your life to Jesus, I need you to ask yourself, where am I failing to love God with everything? Where in my life is the love of God not driving me to action? Where is it not consuming my mind and my words and my actions? Are you an agent of unity within the body of Christ? Are you meeting the needs of those around you, seeking them out? Are you and have you been pursuing after the lost around you with a relentless pursuit that's driven from the love that you've been loved by? I want to be very, very clear. I'm not challenging you in this way and pushing you in this way to heap shame and condemn you. But my hope is that it would spur you on towards repentance and love. My hope is that it would spur you on to holiness and to, to, to look more and more like Jesus and that you would serve God in the way that you were created to be so that you can move forward with a confidence knowing that you have been forgiven. You've been set free from the bounds of sin. Your solution is not to just try harder, to do better. Your solution is to abide in Christ, to rest in the love of Christ. Look at the great love with which you have been loved and let that love stir your heart to love God more. Confess your sins before him and then repent in light of that love and fight and try to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Now, others of you, others of you, if your life is not characterized by obedience, and, and good fruit, and loving others where, well, be very careful. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to heap shame or anything or condemn anyone. I'm just looking at what Scripture says, and Scripture paints a picture of those who love the Lord, who their hearts have been changed by God through Jesus on the cross. Those who love the Lord will live lives marked by obedience, by following His commands, by loving others well, and for us to, to just check the mark and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm this. But then our lives don't line up at all with Scripture. Be very, very careful there. Be very, very careful there. I, I don't want anyone to be fooled by passivity and half-hearted action into thinking that, that they've got this thing checked off. I want you to understand. And maybe there's, there's others of you who who you know you're not fooled, you just know you're not there. Maybe you're still seeking, figuring things out. My, my hope for all of you is this, 
that you would know the magnitude of your sin. God, that you know the, the magnitude of your sin, that you would know your condition before God, that you are deserving of his wrath, but know and understand what has been done for you. Know that Jesus crossed heaven and earth to die on your behalf. And that what it tells us in Romans 10.9, if we would just confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. There's salvation in his name. That if we believe in who he is and what he did and believe that he did it for us, that your sins were taken care of and crucified on the cross of Christ. And so my hope and my prayer is that if any of you need to make that decision tonight, that you would do that. Let me, uh, if you'll bow your heads with me as we go into a time of prayer and then time of worship. I don't know where all of you are. And I know in a room like this, we've got people all over the place. Um, maybe for you, you've been, you've been truthfully serving the Lord well. You've been pursuing him. You've been pursuing law, lost. That's, that's incredible. My prayer and my hope for you, my, the action step for you is that, is that you would be refreshed in remembering the gospel, remembering what's been done for you. Let that spur you on to continue on to fight for holiness. There's others of you, maybe you are followers of Christ, but your life has not looked like it. You have, have forgotten the love with which you were loved, and it's caused you to run to other things. And what you need to do is, like we did earlier, is confess. Lay it at the feet of Jesus, but, but hear this. Do not stay in that guilt and shame, because there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You are set free from the bounds of sin. So confess, and then step forth into the light of his grace. Now there's others of you and maybe you're not a follower of Christ. You've never given your life to Christ. And maybe tonight is the night where you just, things are clicking. The gospel, although you've heard it a million times maybe, it, it just became real for you tonight. Tonight, if you, would, if you would cry out to God, if you would confess your sins before him, confess your need for him, and you would believe that he is the Lord of your life, then you too can have salvation tonight. And so I hope and my prayer is that you will do that.